PR Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Remember to please share, like, and subscribe to not just my podcast, my interviews, but all the programming on Pro Cannabis Media now that we are live streaming 24-7 on our Roku channel and our Apple channel and our website, Pro Cannabis Media. So happy to be interviewing this woman today again, because I met her three years ago in Jamaica as part of Kennex. Her name is Nayimbe McIntosh. And you probably are familiar with her, her dad, Peter Tosh, who was an original member of the Whalers, who played reggae music for a long time with Bob Marley. So, Nayimbe, uh, thank you so much, and it's great to see you again. It's a pleasure to see you as well. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things, when I look at your bio and, and your experiences in your life, um, one of the things that continuously emerges is the fact that you were a Boston school teacher for 10 years, 11 years. Am I right? That's right. Um, I taught in Boston public schools for, for 10 years. I was teaching at New Mission High School um, as a math teacher and a special educator. Um, and I did a little bit of science as well. <laughs> That's right. And you ended up going to Wentworth uh, Technology School and then you got your MBA somewhere else? Yes. Um, well, I did Wentworth Institute of Technology, engineering, electrical engineering degree, and then went and got my master's in education at UMass Boston. There you go. Terrific. And I know we know hundreds of people the same. So we don't need to go into the, do you remember? Do you know? Let's get, let's cut right to the, um, right to the chase here. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Peter Tosh Foundation and what you're doing now. Yes. Um, and so uh, my father actually passed away in, you know, 1987. And so when he passed away, his, his estate um, went into public administration. Um, and so for many years, it was administered by um, a public administrator. And it wasn't until 2009, where the family kind of realized and became educated enough to be like, hey, this is actually something we can control. And so finally, um, it was actually a, a local attorney, uh, David Warnoff, that was like, shouldn't this be run by the family? And it was like, I didn't know that. It's just always been like this. Um, and so in 2009, I became the official kind of head of the estate. And so with that being my responsibility, we've always uh, tried to do any and everything possible to promote the legacy from from working on a major motion film, working on um, series, a Netflix series, working on docu-series, um, a, a play as well, theatrical play. And then, you know, with the booming cannabis industry and my father, um, as you mentioned, he was a found, founding member of the Whalers, but also uh, started his, his uh, solo career with the iconic um, song, Legalize It, an album, which is you know, right here. And so that's been the song of the legalization movement. And so it only seemed right that we venture into the cannabis space. But before doing that, it was very important that we um, have a strong foundation in a literal sense, um, but also in the figurative sense. And so we launched the, the Peter Tosh Foundation um, because my father uh, always had music with a with a mess, message of you know, equal rights and justice and to uplift people and educate people. So we, we thought it was important to do that first. 
Yeah, isn't it amazing? Uh, as, as far as I think we need to go, we have come quite a long distance to the point where both in a Massachusetts, in a legal adult use state that's had a medical program since 2013 that I had my card since. And, you know, now it's actually a political uh, issue in our federal government, which continues to just not get educated enough about this plant. But we are we are light years ahead of where we were a decade ago. Isn't it amazing? It is quite fascinating. You know, um, it was 2014 that I visited uh, Colorado, you know, when they first became um, legal for recreational or adult use. And even still, as far ahead as we are, from you know the federal government, you know you visit California, who's had legalization for for many many years. There's so much more to come as you know the industry progresses in, in different areas in different states, and it just takes the, you know the education along with the regulations, of course. <laughs> Absolutely, and Lord knows there will always be regulations uh, when it comes to cannabis, and and even those who are advocates for it are for the most part, willing to go along with a lot of these. You know, in Massachusetts, though, there is a huge controversy over these host community agreements that licensees have to acquire with a lease before they can even start their application process. So I really believe that even though Massachusetts does have a vibrant market, I really think they've done everything they can to slow down the rollout. And you know, I know people who own dispensaries and it's been extremely frustrating for them. But, you know, here we are over 170 dispensaries in Massachusetts. There's grow facilities sprouting up everywhere and it's a pretty vibrant industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree that there's been a lot of growth. I know people kind of on the other end of the spectrum that have had those challenges with, you know, those host community agreements. Um, you know, they're paying rent and properties for several years. I know people that have, you know, sold their homes to try to sustain the properties that they own. And so it's been a challenge, I think, in the sense that in particularly people of color that um, and those that have been affected by war on drugs, although it's vibrant, I, I still feel like there's a huge disparity between the people that are participating in the industry and those that have been affected by the industry. So I would definitely like to see a shift, um, you know, with participation when it comes to, to um, people of color. And that's nationwide. It's not just Massachusetts. Right. And it's also uh, one of the ideals of the CAO um, law. It's not even law. It was a public document that uh, Senator Schumer introduced last summer. And of course, Senator Booker from New Jersey, he is adamant about making sure that there is a justice, an expungement of past records for those who have been incarcerated, which I know is something that's very special to you. And I also know of your work with Steve D'Angelo's Last Prisoner Project. Um, how is that movement going? And I, I'm on the newsletter of, of Steve's and Last Prisoner Project, so I know they've done some amazing things considering. Oh, yeah, most definitely. So um, with the Peter Tosh Foundation, um, the Last Prisoner Project is what we call an advocacy partner. And um, they have allowed us to kind of share um, in some of our initiatives, particularly the Justice for Jawar, and we can get into that a little bit more. But Last Prisoner Project has done amazing work with um, releasing cannabis um, prisoners from prison, supporting their families, 
uh, creating grants to support the families of, of uh, loved ones that are incarcerated. And they continue uh, to be on the front lines with um, pushing forward with federal regulation as well as expungement. Because one of the issues is that although some states are putting expungement into the regulations, what's missing is the automatic expungement. Because unfortunately, the burden is ends up being on the um, the ex-prisoner to, to go through all of this due process, which often they're ignorant of. And so a lot of times the expungement doesn't happen if it's not automatic. The burden really should be on the states to make sure that they take care of all of the individuals that they've wronged in the past. Absolutely. And, and I'm all for workforce development because we don't want to just throw these people back into society without any skills or training and an opportunity to get hired either by the cannabis community or just the community at large. This is still a huge issue, isn't it? Oh, most definitely. You figure if you're incarcerated for, you know, even a year, simple things like, you know, getting your license, you know, being able to find adequate and affordable housing, and then you're trying to apply for a job. But then if you don't have housing, how does, you know, you don't even have any place to send mail. And so there's a lot of wraparound services that are needed um, for individuals that have been previously incarcerated. So it's, there has to be a lot more support in, in that. And so you're absolutely right. Not only just, you know, getting into the workforce, but simple things as, you know, childcare when they start to be around their families and all the different other supports. But education is, is definitely a, a main um, focus and need. Absolutely. And it's something we believe in all the time here. We're constantly looking for new content that educates the public about this plant medicine that is being mm -hmm. used so effectively anecdotally um, around yes. the world and has been for thousands of years. Um, you mentioned your brother, Jawara. Now, I yes. know when we first met, you were involved with Justice for Jawara and that foundation. Unfortunately, since that time, he has passed. I know your story. Do you mind sharing that again with our audience? Not at all. Um, so Jawara, uh, who's Peter Tosh's, uh, my dad's youngest son, um, was arrested for a cannabis possession back in 2013 in New Jersey. Um, it was Father's Day weekend, and we actually originally thought, or I thought it was just going to be something that kind of we put behind us as a family. But um, he ended up being held without a hearing for three months before actually um, us attending the hearing to find out that he was facing 20 years for um, cannabis possession. It was kind of mind-blowing. Fortunately, he was able to make um, bail that year in 2013 in December. And then um, for three years, he went through pretrial motions, um, constantly being told that, you know, this would be the best plea offer he'd get. So it would go down to 15 years. And then they'd like say, well, this is the best you'll get. You know, you'll get the full 20 or then it will go down to 10 years. And, you know, after a little while and they'll he'll have that kind of um situation over his head where he was concerned about, um, you know, the, the legacy that New Jersey has. Um, they actually have one of the highest mass incarcerates, incarceration rates in the country. And then trying to fight against that system. You know, we are followers of Rastafari. He's a father of four. He's never been in, involved with the criminal justice system before. Um, he's a musician and he's also an activist. And, um, so at that time, we were really torn. Do we really try to stand up for what we believe in or do we risk 
him being taken out of his family's life and, you know, taken out of our lives for up, you know, possibly 20 years. And so in 2016, um, he did take a plea. And um, at that time, I think it was down to about five years, but because he had pretty much did six months, um, they were saying that, you know what, you'll probably only serve um, about a, a year total, you know, if you turn yourself in, you know, it'll, so you'll probably just be able to put it behind you. And so at that point, my brother decided to turn himself into Bergen County Jail in January of 2017. Um, it was about a month later when my mom actually called me very frantically on the phone and she could barely speak, but she was saying, you know, Niambi, there's a, there's a doctor, there's a surgeon on the phone. Um, and he's saying something about your brother. And so the, the surgeon was like, Hey, Niambi, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so from Hackensack medical center. And I need to perform a life-saving metal medical procedure on your brother. He's, um, been attacked by another inmate in jail and, um, we need to authorize this, this surgery. We had not heard anything from the jail at this point, And this was our first um, interaction, knowing that something had happened to Jawara. Um, so we authorized the, the procedure and eventually flew um, right away. We just, you know, got together and flew to New Jersey to be by his side. Um, when we got to Hackensack Medical Center, they had told us um, originally, like right at check-in, they were like, oh, he can't have visitation you have to call the jail. And so um, we call the jail and they're, you know, they're just like, you, he's, you got, we don't normally allow visitation. You know, that's not something that we do. He's a ward of the state. And so honestly, I know that it was my father's name that allowed them to, you know, make a, a consideration for us to, or, or to, to see him. And when we um, walked into the surgical ICU, um, we saw Jawara, he had a um, neck brace on, he was, his face was bruised, he had um, half of his locks were shaved off, um, he had a breathing tube down his throat, he was connected to oxygen, and he had um, handcuffs on his ankle and he was surrounded by correctional officers, he was fighting for his life. And um, it was really at that moment where I realized that I had, that's when I quit teaching actually, and and knew that I had to, you know, pretty much, I knew I had a mission, a new mission, a new purpose ahead of me. Um, unfortunately, he had severe traumatic brain injury and um, um, he was unable to do anything for himself. Um, the simplest things from communicate to eat. Um, his body was trying to figure out how to just breathe at this point on its own. And um, he stayed in the ICU for three months um, before coming to Massachusetts and being in the hospital for um, all, a little bit over 500 days. Uh, we took him home and finally were able to care for him and provide 24-hour care. But unfortunately, in 2020, um, he had passed away from his injuries. And um, so that was um, the continuation of the Justice for Jawara that we continue to share his story to, to let people really understand how important federal legalization is, if not global legalization. You know, um, America incarcerates uh, the highest percentage of the global population. Um, and we are known to, you know, compared to any other major country, you look at China or Russia, um, it's just not okay. And it's not a safe place for particularly people that have 
um, are nonviolent offenders. And so uh, federal legalization is urgent. It's not something that we can continue to just push back. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's an amazing story. And it's also available at a very special dispensary in Jamaica Plain in Boston called Seed. I was uh, I actually when I when they opened and I went in to do a little walking tour with April and, and, and the rest of them there, I saw your uh, your story in an actual jail cell in the middle of the dispensary. They have an amazing social justice museum and exhibit inside that dispensary. And I have urged people that is what we call a destination dispensary before besides just the dispensing of the plant medicine, but just to learn about the history of it. And I was amazed at the mural on the wall of all the former musicians who have had mm -hmm. uh, situations with the law where they were arrested or at least hassled. And, um, and, and there's documentation of that too. Um, how did you get involved with Seed? Um, yeah, April is um, had reached out to, to me to be on her uh, curing council. So SEED is the dispensary, but there's actually a, a nonprofit organization, which is the museum, um, called CORE um, Social Justice Cannabis Museum. And so she asked me, along with um, some other amazing individuals, to, to participate in um, you know, curating the, the museum and all of the exhibits. Yeah, and, and, and my, you know, great, the story was only fitting. Yeah, it, it, it's a great Sorry, job. Again, yeah. I, I, you know, I definitely urge people who happen to be listening to this, and if you are in the Massachusetts area or you visit, um, check that out. It's in JP. You can't miss it because it's literally in the middle of Jamaica Plain, <laughs> and right <laughs> nice. in the center, right at the circle there. And um, it's a really, really nicely run uh, dispensary. And of course, uh, I'm pretty sure it's mostly female owned and operated. Am I right? Um, yes, yes, it's um, mostly female. It's also minority, a huge percentage of minority owned and operated. Um, she, April made a, a point to, to really try to do, um, do it right. And, you know, I think she embodies, you know, and seed really embodies what the cannabis industry should look like being inclusive um, of those that have been impacted by the war on drugs and, and making sure that it's a diverse establishment. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, we encourage that as well. Um, we, you talked about that story about your brother. And as you know, um, Last Prisoner Project is dedicated to get every prisoner in our jail system right now, our prison system right now, who has been arrested for cannabis out and get their records expunged. It's an incredible undertaking by Steve D'Angelo and his whole group there. Um, but there's a bigger picture. And now that I've learned quite a bit about our prison system, punishment doesn't work. There has to be some kind of uh, a, a different philosophy and thought process about what we can do for our prisoners because it has worked. Reform has worked in other countries in the modern era. Okay, so I, I recognize that it's a privately run enterprise, and you know, at the time, law enforcement they love to profile. The, the people of color so that they could hassle them and, 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 you know, get their arrest records where they needed to be. They had to meet a certain quota of arrests or whatever it was. They filled up the jail with nonviolent drug offenders. And I, I, I was pissed off, to be honest with you, when I learned more and more about that. Are you involved at all in any kind of a prison reform 
movement other than uh, working with Last Prisoner Project? Um, that's one of the main the main movements um, that I participate in, and, and through the Peter Tosh Foundation, we're we're continuously looking for for um, partners to really un, to to really share Jawara's story, to have people understand why. Um, prison reform is is definitely needed. Um, you know, as you said, punishment does not work, and a lot of people that are in our prison system um, are dealing with poverty first, um, and you know, mental illness as well. And so, when we look at even our most violent offenders, um, usually that's an issue around mental illness. Healthy people don't usually kill people. You know what I mean? That's that, that, thankfully, that's yeah. Just, that's usually how things things work. And so it's it's if we can, as a society, understand that first access to good education is most important. There's all there's a direct correlation between um, the the pipeline to prison and those that uh, are illiterate from a very young age. And, and you'll see that people often stray away from school if they struggle struggle academically. And then what's left is, you know, getting yourself in trouble. And that's universal. It doesn't matter the color or creed. Um, that you come from. But unfortunately, often in uh, predominantly Black neighborhoods, you'll find that the um, education system isn't as, um, doesn't match, you know, their white counterparts in, in a lot of spaces. And so it's time for us as a society to really invest in education first, um, and then also support those that um, need mental health support. Um, now, and during the pandemic, there's been just an influx of, of situations, and we're seeing that it's affecting everyone. And we, we as a society, definitely have to do a lot more. Yeah, and again, you, you know, I, I hate to bring up sports, but that's my background. And professional athletes are recognizing the importance of, of mental illness too. And we've seen some examples in the news, even within the last year. But I want to talk to you about the educational system here in the United States, because I, I like to think of myself as an educator and a coach, as well as a producer. And, and I guess I'm a little businessman, too. But um, I definitely I, I am concerned not only about our cities and the education there, access to the Internet there, like they get in the suburbs. Right. But it's what is being taught our life skills. Don't you think life skills are more vocational trade uh, education would be more valuable to people uh, in, in our in our world. I mean, how do you view some of the reforms in education that you'd like to see? Um, no, that definitely. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, I think that one of the things that are are really important, and you mentioned trade. I uh, that's very important. Just general life skills, health and wellness is extremely important. Um, you have we we have a, a health epidemic, you know, right now, and you know we uh, have large numbers of people dying from heart disease, diabetes, and only if education of like how diet, simple little things, you know that could easily be taught um, within from a very young age to help us understand how we can not only have outlets for when we're stressed, but also how we can impact our bodies um, healthy through just exercise and, and some of the fundamentals. Um, finance education is not taught in the schools. You know, some schools will teach it, but it's very few. It's not something that's as, as, a, as mandated by 
by the government. It's not part of the core curriculum. And, and there's some, you know, exceptional schools that offer that, but we should all know how to balance a checkbook. We should all know how to use an ATM. By the time you, you graduate, you should understand the difference between a credit card and a debit card. Um, and so even, you know, and I would go into sex education and, and just sex education is health education, you know, where it's the, it's human biology on how to, you know, that, how to like understand how we function as humans, but then how to be safe when you function as humans. And so um, I, I could go through a long list as, you know, I'm a former Educator. So there was always, I used my space to kind of show documentaries during lunchtime. I was a teacher that, you know, would, would try to give everything under the sun besides on top of math um, while I had students for those, you know, for those four years in high school. It's funny, something I learned today, I knew that you were a teacher of the Boston school system, but I didn't realize it was math, which is yeah. <laughs> kind of unique for for a female, because, you know, that whole STEM initiative and, you know, I recognize that women can learn engineering skills just as well as men can. I recognize <laughs> that. Okay. And it's yeah. maybe even better. Okay. <laughs> that being said, uh, it's still rare. And, and that's why I think it's awesome that uh, you, you were able to do that in, for quite a period of time in Boston. Obviously, you yeah. that experience, it, it, there's nothing better than seeing your students actually learn something and then use it in, in life or in their world, right? I mean, I, I still live for that. Yeah, I mean, I've had students to, to just highlight how simple education can help. Um, when they come in with their like yellow or orange soda, I'm like, hey, you see that ingredient, you know, yellow number five? I'm like, that's a carcinogen. Do you know what a carcinogen is? And I'm like, that's a cancer causing ingredient. And I'll watch a kid take it and throw it in the trash right there and come in every day after that, just drinking water, you know? And so, um, yeah, I was an engineer for many years and I, I always love uh, working with my hands and so thought that's really what I wanted to do. But I've always had a passion for, for young people and, and educating and helping young people. So I, I realized I really enjoyed teaching. And so right. that's it's, where I spent most of my time teaching. <laughs> that's, that's great. And, you know, I always say once a teacher, always an educator. Okay. Yes. And, and that's really, really important. Um, I really want to, I want to offer one thing on recording. Okay. And, and make sure you understand that I have no agenda here. Somehow, some way, we'd like to create either a public service announcement or tell your story to our regular audience. Uh, you know, whether it's a one minute or a two minute little video, uh, we'd love to do it. I, I always rant about the fact that, you know, we're, we're trying to learn about this plant, but the industry is banned from even doing public service announcements on traditional radio or TV. We're an internet network. I welcome it. I would love to offer our services to produce something for you and your foundation, if you'd be interested in that. I definitely love to learn more about it. Sounds pretty cool. Sounds interesting. You have my contact information through Will, William, yep. I'm sure. Um, but it sounds like something that, you know, we can definitely participate in. Fantastic. Uh, Naomi, it has been now I've had two pleasures of hanging out with you and talking with you. This <laughs> one we will preserve forever on the internet. Okay. I promise you that. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. If people want to uh, find out more about the Peter uh, Tosh Foundation, how do they get in touch with you? What's the email or the website they can yes. check that out? 
Um, thank you for asking. So it's www.petertosh.com and then at Peter Tosh on any social media platform. So that's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, you name it. And so we're pretty accessible. So I, I got to tell you, as we close here, um, I've loved reggae music and the Jamaican culture since I visited that country when I was 12 years old. Oh, okay. wow. Awesome. And by the way, I was not partaking at 12. It was a few years later, <laughs> but I still appreciated the music. And even in college here in Boston at Tufts University, one night we went down to the Orson Welles Cinema in uh, Harvard Square and Jimmy Cliff was playing at the music hall. Nice. <laughs> I'm dating myself here, but that's yeah. what saw, right? uh, yeah. WBC, WBCN, the radio station simulcast the the concert and after the concert we all piled into my car drove to cambridge watched the harder they come and jimmy cliff showed up at the end of that movie and i waved to him and then i walked up to him and i shook his hand and that was really a thrill for me so i <laughs> love the music i love the country of jamaica i want to see them get their just place as the international community evolves uh, with cannabis are you involved at all uh, in the native land as far as the um uh, the growth of cannabis besides growing it in the ground? We are uh, working to build more relationships with some of the Rastafari communities there and um, really work to, to integrate them into the cannabis industry. It's very complicated <laughs> since it, being it, in a whole other country. <laughs> I, I learned that at Canex 2019. I'll tell you that. Yes. I, got, I actually interviewed um, the first man, the Rastafarian that was at that conference. And that was a thrill yep. for me. And he enlightened me about the, the religion and, and the role that the plant plays in their world. And that was fascinating for me. I loved it. And again, I'm going to wave the flag and offer again, please, we will get in touch with you. We will figure out a way to work together because I, I share the love of life that is all about the plant, right? Awesome. Yes, definitely. <laughs> there we go. Well, that'll do it for another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. I want to thank Naomi McIntosh. And also my staff at PCM for putting this out there. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. And always remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there, people. Let's use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. PCM TV is supported by Salient Systems, a world leader in video management security. And by Revolutionary Clinics, a medical dispensary where the patient comes first. And by Accounting Buds, your number one CPA specialist for the cannabis industry. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area. Now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. Difference is building a solution for that individual. Not just a custom, here's a box, here's a video, here's how you make your VMS. We custom design and custom build every situation for exactly what the customer needs. 
and we keep the cost low. We have multiple tiers, you know, as far as what you're looking at on the cost side of things. If you want a one-time, you know, where you just pay one initial cost, we have that. If you want to maintain your system and have the highest protection and highest capabilities and highest upgrades at all times, we have different plans for you. But we scale it so it's scalable and affordable 100%. Cannabis Media Programming is available live and on demand on our Facebook page at ProCanna Media, on Instagram at ProCannabis Media, on LinkedIn also at ProCannabis Media, on YouTube and YouTube Live on ProCannabis Media, Twitter at ProCanna Media, and on twitch.tv backslash ProCannabis Media. So like, share, and subscribe to all of our content, newsletters, and shows live or on demand. We are Pro Cannabis Media.